Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes! We are go for launch. Welcome back everybody, Almost Sideways Podcast, episode 24. Once again, I'm your host, Terry Plucknett, and joining me are our co-hosts, Zach Saltz and Todd Plucknett. How's it going, guys? Great. Actually, before we started this, I was just, uh, like, making my new Oscar predictions uh, that probably will be out in the next couple weeks, so we could talk about that next time. Yes, I wow, like that. Wow, that, dr- that was a drop. Woo! Someone Teaser. turn on the... Turn on the, the turn on the AC, man. I'm sweating in here. Todd's Oscar predictions. Whoa, was not expecting that. Well, well, he had to come with something with something big after being MIA for the last podcast. That is yeah, true. I was in the desert. It was 102. That was really nice. But it wasn't Las Vegas. No, I was actually like four hours from Las Vegas, but some lady backed into my rental car, so I shouldn't exactly drive it that far. <laughs> So that happened. Did you have insurance on the rental car? No, I didn't. It was a whole thing. I don't want to get into it. <laughs> great, great radio right now. I was really disappointed we didn't get any hashtag find Todd pictures. Uh, Todd, you may need shocker. to just like take one of yourself and send it to send it to us just so just so someone can make Zach do a yoga pose. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't have Twitter, remember, so... Oh, yes, that's right, that's right. Too cool for Twitter. Too cool. Uh, Well, uh, once again, thanks for uh, joining us. If you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe on iTunes, rate, review. uh, That way more people can find us. Find us at almostsideways.com. Find us on Facebook. Find me and Zach, at least, on Twitter. And uh, see some of our content there. We're going to hop right into this because we have a busy show for you guys today. We're going to be uh, reviewing a movie. We're going to be talking about what's coming up this uh, the rest of this year. Uh, we have a power rankings coming up. We've got, uh, we've got trivia coming up. So uh, let's hop into our movie review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. you got to see it. Movie Reviews. And for our movie review this week, we looked at the new Paul Feig film that uh, just was released this weekend, A Simple Favor. And it's definitely a departure from some of what uh, Paul Feig has done recently. So, uh, Todd, I'm going to throw it to you first. Uh, tell us what A Simple Favor is all about and what you thought of it. Okay, uh, A Simple Favor is, uh, it follows a character named Stephanie. She's a video blogging mother, and she begins a friendship with... Uh, a fellow mother named Emily and the more we get to know about this woman and her secretive life uh, more bizarre and sinister the movie gets uh, one day Emily asks Stephanie for a simple favor which is to pick up her kid pick up her kid from school which is a normal occurrence but this time she doesn't show up to pick up her kid from Stephanie's house uh, her husband hasn't heard from her and naturally they start worrying because no calls or messages are being returned uh, Stephanie kind of developed a really clear obsession with Emily. It was almost like cable guy-ish uh, in that regard. Like, she refers to her as her best friend after meeting her, like, two weeks earlier. And, like, she's, like, begging for sympathy from her 
like vlog viewers when she goes missing. Um, so, and so it it makes the audience feel like a a suspicion of foul play in some way, but we don't really know. So like, what happened to Emily? Why does she not like her picture being taken? How do you make a really awesome martini? Like, these are the questions that are answered during this, like, really cool, mysterious, sexy, slick movie. Um, Stephanie's played by Anna Kendrick, and she brings her, like, natural, like, goofiness to the movie, which makes it, like, hold back from being, like, totally dark. And Emily is played by Blake Lively, and I think it's, like, her second best performance ever behind the town. Uh, she's, like, a young Uma Thurman, I always felt like, and these types of characters where she really shines. Paul Feig is most known for his movies like Bridesmaids and The Heat. And the, But this movie almost immediately becomes his best movie because all of his other movies are really sort of like derivative and, and not... I, I, I don't like, like any of them, but this one is like really cool and it's like a definite departure from what he normally does with like an underlying comedic sense at the same time. Uh, as, as it get, goes along, the movie's kind of preposterous, but it, it never loses its focus. It, it kind of reminded me of, like, Big Little Lies, the TV miniseries. It's sort of, like, soapy in ways at, at times, but one thing I really appreciated was uh, they have long scenes of dialogue where that's how you learn about the characters and not through, like, actually watching it. There's It, it almost is, like, stagey in a way. And uh, you never know too much more than the characters do. You sort of unravel the mystery with them. Uh, the The climactic scene is staged like a comedy scene. It's almost like a slapstick, like standoff kind of thing. But it's totally told completely seriously. But there's always that 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 comedic undertone that makes it not com- make it makes it a little bit more uneasy than you would think. Uh, overall, I thought it was I thought it was cool and unpredictable. I had a bunch of theories throughout the movie that all were shot down eventually, and uh, the performances and the ambiance are really cool. And I don't know, it's like a Gillian Flynn adaptation, but with like a, a sick comedic edge to it. I, I really liked it. I give it three stars. All right, three stars from Todd. I think I'm gonna go next because uh, coming into this, I I wasn't. 100% sure where I was going to fall on it. Um, I was I was entertained throughout the movie. I, uh, I enjoyed watching it. It had me engaged the whole time. Uh, however, in, in watching it, I felt like it was a movie that didn't know what it wanted to be. Like Todd said, it's, it's kind of this thriller that has this edgy comedy to it. I don't think it's edgy at all. I think the comedy parts kind of ruin it and, give, and are eye-rolling and Go, are just going for these cheap laughs to get the middle-aged women in the theater. Uh, it was, um, it, uh, sorry, that was funny. <laughs> that was, I'm sorry. That was funny. It, it totally Keep was. Going. It totally was. The other parents are completely useless characters except to, except to do that. That is their, their only goal in this entire thing. Um, I, I thought, it could have been, I, I like how Todd said it, it reminded him of a Jillian Flynn, because it could have been Gone Girl with, like, this quirky side to it. But instead, it if, if it was trying to be a thriller, it went for too many cheap laughs. And if it was trying to be a comedy, it was way too dark. And instead, it, was, it left both sides disappointed. I thought it, it had a really cool vibe to it, 
but it just went it it just loses its way in in it trying to be funny uh like like todd said i thought anna kendrick was great i thought blake lively was great um all, all the main characters were great i thought todd said he liked the climactic scene i thought the climactic scene was completely uh predictable like i saw every single step of it coming and i was annoyed by it and how oh, yeah, and how totally, much it, you, you totally saw how it actually ended outside right oh i told i totally saw that coming not not no <laughs> no the actual the the actual how like like who was there just pissed me oh, off you, you mean the final but, you mean the final the final scene not necessarily yeah, yeah. the final okay not yeah. necessarily the, the the calculations of the plot just the final scene yeah 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 because that's, that's okay yeah and uh and then uh, okay so a couple other things that that annoyed me that really don't matter that much but i have to mention because they annoy me um you can't put an epilogue where are they now thing at the end if it's not a true story i'm sorry it doesn't work um and the last thing i'm someone who likes to sit through the credits and the for the first time i ever at the movies i was distracted by the credits because i'm trying to look at all the names on there and the credits i don't know if you guys know this the credits move like every three seconds because they're trying to be all cool and edgy and and it just made it impossible to read it's like the purpose of the credits is to see the names and you're making it impossible to read anyways i'm going way too deep into why uh into what annoyed me about this movie but like i said i was entertained by it i just didn't quite know what to do with it uh i'm giving it two stars uh i i wish it had it had avoided some of the some of the cheap laughs i wish it had left the other parents completely out of it and just gone for being like uh, like gone girl with anna kendrick was enough to make it quirky it didn't need the cheap laughs in it too so that's where i'm at zach but what do you think that's the paul feig thing dude yeah that's why i said it's it's like it was like cable guy like i really felt like i was watching like a serious version of the cable guy i really i really like that comparison because yeah you had this anna kendrick character who you could tell doesn't know how to relate to anybody and finally finds someone that ha- just shows that glimmer of interest and clings on in a creepy way. And uh, that's totally what Anna Kendrick was in this movie. But at the same time, yeah, the the rest of it annoyed me too much to, to give it any higher. So uh, to me, Paul Feig reminds me of a Cab Franc. I've learned never to expect great things from him, and this one is no different. Oh, I was waiting to say that so oh, long, and I nailed it. Well done. Well done. Um, I totally agree with Terry on, on this movie. Um, I hadn't even thought about the where are they now. That was a great observation, Terry. Um, you, you can't do that in a, in a made-up movie. However, They do there that is all the time. I don't know, no, I don't know why this one bothered, bothered you. Oh, it was so stupid. The only movie, the only fiction movie that can get away with it is National Lampoon's Animal House, because that was funny. But, uh, no, it was absolutely outrageous. I didn't stay for the end credits. I wanted to dash out of there because I was sick of this movie. So I, I didn't get a chance to see the end credits. But, um, let's see. Here, here are things I liked about this movie. I, there are three of them. 
Um, I like the drinking scenes. I agree with you, Todd. The martini recipe that Blake Wiley gives is really interesting, and I want to try it myself. I FYI, yeah. Todd, Todd, I was texting Todd during college football last night, and he was doing it. Not How did, how did it turn out? Uh, it was really good. I mean, it, it, you definitely do need to freeze the glass, though. That's the key. Yeah. I now, now, did you? And to, toss out the vermouth, for sure. Did you throw it on the floor like she did? Uh, I actually used the sink, but yeah, I probably oh. should use the floor and not use the rag. Like, do not touch that rag. <laughs> now, okay. now, now, did did you use the Ryan Reynolds gin like they did in the movie? No, I don't even know where I would find that. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, that that's the little homage to Blake Lively's husband. The the gin they use in the movie is uh, from a company that Ryan Reynolds owns. Anyways, continue, Zach. You know way too much. Okay. The second thing I liked in this movie, and I won't spoil too much, but there's, there's a painting in this movie that has a significance to it, and it's a great painting. I want it in my house. Uh, it would make an awesome, <laughs> awesome decoration. It's a very R-rated painting. It was very funny, though. I liked it. And then the third was I liked the scene where uh, Andrew Ken- Anna Kendrick is in the house trying on clothes in Blake Lively's closet, and th- that French song Bonnie and Clyde is playing which I've always thought was a cool song Serge, uh, Serge Gainsbourg and Bridget Bordeaux yeah um, and uh, that scene kind of made me it reminded me a little bit of that scene in Personal Shopper with Kristen Stewart where she tries on um, like the rich lady's clothes and it made me think like this could have been maybe a good movie had it gone a more interesting direction but I, I really reiterate pretty much everything that Terry said um, this movie was like laughably over the top uh, but you know what? It took itself seriously. That was the problem. It 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 could have maybe worked had it had a sense of humor about it. To me, it kind of it reminded me of like a Jane the Virgin episode. It was like a novella. You know, these these um, soap opera components were so melodramatic that you couldn't really believe them. It almost was in self parody territory, and it got dangerously close to Tommy Wiseau territory at parts. I I don't know if Paul Feig really took this seriously or not. I can't imagine that he did. So I wish that the movie had had a more sarcastic, cynical bent to it. It went on way too long. I would agree, Terry, the side characters were really annoying. Um, and yeah, it had like these little things that they threw out to the Gone Girl fans. That uh, And Gone Girl wasn't even a great movie to begin with. So um, it was pretty Ooh. much a total disaster. Uh, and, and you know what? I knew it from the first scene when they used uh, the, when they used the uh, non copyright YouTube because they didn't get permission from YouTube to have her blogging channel on YouTube. So that was the first red flag, um, and it just went downhill from there. One and a half stars for me. Very disappointing. Just like a cat frog. Well, see, I, I'm I'm like on the two two and a half border there. I I could I I could be convinced otherwise, but but yeah, I'm I'm right along with you. Um however, I will say what are the chances that that uh that painting ends up in Deadpool 3 since it is of Blake Lively? I mean, I guess that would that that would uh <laughs> you know, keep up with the the martini that was used. Where did you get that information by the way? Is that just readily available? It, I, or, I I I did, I, I kind of did, did a little dive? little bit of a deep dive on it, yeah. Yeah. Because I wanted to forget about this movie the moment I left the theater, so I didn't even look anything up. But uh, yeah, so Todd, you're you're in the minority here. But That's good. You also like Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick a lot. Yeah. Is is that not normal? <laughs> 
I think it's influencing your your sentiment about this movie. Well, yeah, I feel like if Blake Lively wasn't wasn't playing Emily, I probably wouldn't have uh, taken to it as much. I guess, but I don't know. I mean, you know my uh, like low key obsession with the sister of the traveling pants or whatever. <laughs> so. <you know. laughs> Uh, it's not that low-key, Todd. It's not that low-key. It's it's not as well-known known as Ryan Reynolds' <laughs> martini. Everyone knows about it. So, Todd, one, one thing that's interesting about this movie that you figured out is the husband character is a, is kind of had a very unique year. Yeah, uh, I just looked it up, and he has not appeared in anything until this year and his two movies were this movie and crazy rich asians in which he's like the lead guy so this like random actor out of malaysia just randomly just comes into hollywood and has two big summer movies at the same time which is interesting and that cannot be normal it's almost like edward norton 1996 kind of thing but not out of malaysia He's the Malaysian exactly. Edward Norton. There, there's the drop of the day right there. <laughs> and I, I thought he was very good in this too. I, I, I enjoyed him. But uh, it, it sounds like we're, we're, we are split on this one. Uh, and once again, I'm somewhere in the middle. So Zach's giving it one and a half stars. Uh, I'm giving it two stars. Todd has it at a solid three stars. Um, One thing I gotta ask though, uh, for the trailers that were shown before, did you guys see <laughs> a the uh, a trailer for A Star Is Born where it was just them sitting in a parking lot, like that it was like a whole scene of just them sitting in a parking lot and she starts singing. Yes. Did no. you see that? I did. Yes. I didn't. I had not seen that trailer. That was totally different than any other trailer, and that actually made me actually want to see the movie more. <laughs> yes. Yes, and that's gonna be getting into what we're gonna be talking about next. Uh, which is uh, looking at those. So uh, to wrap up, um, a simple favor. Um, I think it's worth a watch. If if this if any of what we've said sounds intriguing to you at all, uh, check it out. But yeah, I let's don't hop think it. It's worth a watch. It's the worst. It's my worst movie of the year so far. It actually usurped uh, uh, that stupid Joaquin Phoenix movie. I hated this movie. I profoundly hated it actually. Well, there profoundly. you go. Profoundly. Profoundly. Yes. I don't know. Okay, see, here's another thing. Well, real fast about this movie. This movie reminded me of another movie that's out that's also about someone who mysteriously disappears, and that movie is Searching. And did either of you see that? Not yet. No. Searching is a like a considerably better version of this same movie. So maybe that's influencing my opinion. There are there are some oddly similar coincidences in both movies, and Searching is a far superior movie. So what I would say to to people out there, all seven listeners, is go check out Searching, or season Not, two of American Vandal, or season two of American Vandal. Yeah, that that's true. Well, now uh, let's move on from a simple favor, uh, and uh, hop into our spotlight segment. Spotlight. And our spotlight segment uh, for this podcast is a little different than uh, than other times because it's basically going to be an extra power ranking that we're doing as we're looking ahead at the rest of this year and looking at what films we are most looking forward to seeing over the next few months as we uh, really get into award season and what kind of movies we'll be look we'll be talking about. Uh, come February when the Oscars come out. 
since I since we're talking about the Oscars, really quick, we should have talked about this up, up at the top. Uh, last podcast, Zach and I started a segment where we were going to go through the years and talk about what would be uh, most popular film from years past. And we're not doing that this time because between that podcast and this podcast, the uh, most popular film category has been canceled before it even ever was given. So, uh, Zach, I'm going to throw this to you since we talked about this quite a bit on the last podcast. What do you think about this whole thing just going away? Um, I, I think it's all a publicity stunt, and they just want to draw attention to it. Um, yes. That's, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, that's, all, that's all you got? I Th- think this was planned from the start. They knew fans would hate it, and they just want people talking about the Oscars. Todd, what do you think? I don't know. I think that they jumped to a conclusion and then they saw the backlash and they were just like, yeah, screw it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what, we're, uh, what we are looking forward to. So we're going to go through and uh, go through our top five most anticipated of the rest of the year. Uh, Zach, let's start with you. Uh, give us your number five most anticipated. All right. Well, my number five most anticipated is a curious movie because it's not a movie that was filmed in recent times. It was a film that was filmed about 45, 50 years ago. And that film is The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' legendary, unfinished mockumentary that is apparently his cynical, blistering attack on New Hollywood in the early 1970s. Uh, in the early 1970s, Orson Welles was very much out of fashion with Hollywood. He had gone to Europe. He had been basically exiled from the industry. And he had filmed this uh, this piece that was supposed to be his commentary on Hollywood. And it was this mockumentary that had a ton of people in it. John Huston, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Mercedes McCambridge, um, Susan Strasberg. And it just got stuck in a limbo. So finally, uh, pieces of it have been put together after a crowdsourcing campaign that I believe Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach were a part of. And now it is getting released on Netflix. Finally, after 40-some long years, um, it's being released officially in November. So The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' long, unfinished, mysterious masterpiece, finally getting seen. Yes, I I would agree. That, That one does look fascinating. Yeah, the trailer looks ridiculous. And I love that it's Netflix, so we can actually, you know, actually see it. Yep. Yeah. Now now all we're waiting for is the day the clown cried, so. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, that would be something. All right, Todd, number five. Uh, my number five uh, is going to be released December 28th, and that is Lars von Trier's uh, The House That Jack Built. And uh, von Trier is a crazy man. And, but whenever he makes a movie, you have to pay attention, even if it's like an abomination like Antichrist. Uh, this movie is about a serial killer named Jack, who is played by Matt Dillon, and it follows him for 12 years, uh, going into detail of his mindset of his landmark kills that developed him into a serial killer. Uh, it's probably going to be like really hard to watch and offensive, but films like this need to be cherished because they don't really make them like ever, and Von Trier just really doesn't care. Uh, Matt Dillon, uh, Uma Thurman, Riley Keough, Bruno Ganz. It's, I hope it's as brutal and as crazy as the festivals have made it out to be. And it will be the next, you know, feel-bad movie of Christmas. So, The House That Jack Built. I definitely want to see that. Alright. 
Number five on my list is probably the most mainstream movie that'll be on any of our lists. Uh, Wintertime comes with some blockbusters, and this is one that I am actually really looking forward to. Uh, coming out November 16th is Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, uh, the newest uh, movie in the Harry Potter universe. I went and saw the first one in theaters, absolutely loved the new spin that they're taking on, on this franchise. Uh, I can't wait to see where it goes. Uh, Eddie Redmayne is back as Newt Scamander. Uh, you have all the, all the main characters back, including Johnny Depp as Grindelwald. And Jude Law as a young Dumbledore. Uh, the one disappointing thing, I wish they had cast Jared Harris, since his father Richard Harris was the original Dumbledore. I mean, it just would have made sense. But Jude Law is going to do a great job, too. I'm really looking forward to it. I've never really been disappointed by a movie from the Harry Potter franchise, and I'm hoping this one doesn't start a trend. So um, number five on my list is Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And I know it's not going to be on any of your lists, and that's okay. I think that's a safe assumption. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, number four. All right, number four on my list is the uh, latest film, well, the first film in 11 years by uh, Tamara Jenkins, who directed The Savages, and this is Private Life, uh, starring Paul Giamatti, Molly Shannon, Catherine Hahn. And again, I don't know too much about it, uh, except that the trailer shows a, a story of a, uh, of a couple in uh, New York, and I guess they're having fertility problems. And any major release that would uh, star Paul Giamatti and be about fertility problems is a movie I need to see. Um, it looks like a, a comedy drama, and uh, I really like Tamara Jenkins. She uh, is married to the co-writer of Sideways, and seeing as this is the star of Sideways, uh, really can't go wrong. So, absolutely. Uh, being released uh, on October 5th, Private Life. All right. It's a good choice. Yeah. Todd. I remember uh, coming across a movie on my January Oscar predictions, and I really wanted to see it, but I haven't heard anything about it since. All right, my number four is uh, the new movie by Lazo Nemis, who is the director of Son of Saul. Uh, it's called Sunset, and the plot reads, A woman who becomes a strong and fearless woman in Budapest before World War One." And now Nemis obviously won an Oscar for his last movie, and I always say they're not a good, not enough good World War One movies, and I hope this is one of them. The cast has... Uh, the star of Goodnight Mommy, and it has Vlad Ivanov from Four Months, Ooh. Three Weeks, and Two Days. That guy's awesome. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. There are a ton of great foreign movies that are coming out uh, this fall, and but this one has caught my eye the most. So, Sunset. It does not actually have a U.S. release date yet, but it is going to come out this year. All right. Number four on my list is going to be released on November 2nd, and it is the biopic of Freddie Mercury entitled Bohemian Rhapsody uh, starring Rami Malek from iRobot. Uh, this looks amazing. I've The trailer just got me more pumped for it. Uh, Rami Malek is creepy in how well he's embodying Freddie Mercury. Uh, and it really focuses on when Queen really hit their, hit their peak. Uh, at the uh, at the Live Aid concert they had in in London, uh, 
I I can't wait to see this movie. I love music movies to begin with, and I love Queen, and uh, it looks like this is going to be another really great uh, musical biopic. So I'm I'm really looking forward to Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, directed by Brian Singer. I don't know. I I could see that movie maybe disappointing people because of all the high expectations uh, of any kind of biopic of Freddie Mercury. It could. It could. I'm hoping it doesn't. But um, I'm really looking forward to see which way it goes. Yeah, that movie has gone through sort of like a, a roller coaster of when they had uh, Sasha Baron Cohen cast in that role from like years ago, and then it, I don't know. It's just sort of like this is what it's become. But he does like Rami Malek does look a lot like Freddie Mercury, so that's a good start. Yeah. Uh, my number three is the follow-up to uh, Moonlight, uh, Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, and that is If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, the first trailers for this came out a few weeks ago, and I think they look r- really good. The IMDb plot synopsis is, A woman in Harlem desperately scrambles to prove her fiancé innocent of a crime while carrying their first child. Um, the initial reviews from festivals have been really strong for this film. Um, Barry Jenkins has not made a lot of movies, but pretty much everything he's done has been super impressive. And uh, this is based on a novella, I believe, by James Baldwin. Um, and, uh, we all know that, uh, you know, uh, hit the recent documentary about him, I'm Not Your Negro, was uh, pretty popular, so, um, I get the sense that this will be a really strong contender at Oscar time, and Barry Jenkins did not win Best Director for Moonlight, <coughs> but hopefully he'll get another nomination maybe this year, uh, if this movie lives up to expectations. So, If Beale Street Could Talk, number three, being released on November 30th. That's a great choice. That is definitely one of my uh, most anticipated as well. Yeah, me too. My number three is a definite Todd movie. It is by Jacques Audiard. It's being released on September 21st, and that is The Sisters Brothers. Uh, it's got Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, Riz Ahmed, and Jake Gyllenhaal by the director of A Prophet. So... Uh, yeah, I cannot wait to see what this is. Like, the trailer looks really funny, and uh, the, all of the talent involved makes it me feel like it's going to be more than just a Western comedy. It's about a gold prospector who's being chased across the country by incompetent brothers, assassins, who are Phoenix and Riley, that which sounds completely awesome. Uh, I'll watch the, those guys in anything. The Sisters Brothers that is my number three. Yeah, that movie looks really intriguing. Todd, did you ever see uh, Damsel, the comedy western with Robert Pattinson that was released this summer? Uh, no, it was never released around me. I have not seen that yet. Okay, it looked really similar to that film, and that was that was a pretty interesting film, but I thought, I don't know, there were just some parallels between the two. Yeah, I remember, I, I came across both of them when I was doing my early Oscar predictions, and I mentioned both of them, but I, yeah, they did sort of seem like they were in the same area. Well, uh, number three on my list is a movie that's already been mentioned uh, a little earlier, and that is A Star is Born. This is uh, coming out on October 5th, uh, starring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, written and directed by Bradley Cooper as well. Uh, This is a remake of a remake of a remake of a remake, I think. Uh, Is this the fourth A Star is Born? I think it's the fourth A Star is Born. Uh, Fourth or fifth. But this is definitely looking to be a, uh, a fascinating one uh, with Bradley Cooper fronting it in his directorial debut, uh, giving Lady Gaga a spotlight like this. Uh, everything I've heard about it is that it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, 
Uh, I would not be uh, surprised if Lady Gaga ended up with an Oscar nomination out of something like this. Uh, and Bradley Cooper is really showing that he is a heavyweight in uh, in the movie industry right now. I heard something saying that uh, he spent a year in vocal coaching to lower his voice an octave in order to play this role, which I think is just insane. Uh, being someone who's musical, that's ridiculous to even consider doing something like that for a role. But he did because he's Bradley Cooper. But the, this just looks like it looks like a total Terry movie, actually. If I'm if, if anything is, I think it's going to be something like this. So I'm I'm super looking forward to a Star Is Born. Yeah, I would have to agree with you, Terry. I mean, besides the fact that the trailer is now played at basically every movie I've seen the last three months, um, I do think that it looks really appealing. Um, it almost looks like Bradley Cooper was going for like a Terrence Malick thing with some of those shots in the trailer. Um, hopefully it's better than you know song to song, but um, the cast looks really good, and this is Lady Gaga's debut, right? I mean, she's been in some movies before, but usually playing herself, I think. She was in the uh, Machete Kills not playing herself <laughs> okay well i know she was on american horror story too but i mean this is like the first major film role right is that fair to characterize yeah i'd yeah. say that's that's fair uh i think and, she's eventually and... gonna get an egot honestly <laughs> i think she probably will win for either a song or actress for this movie so and that's the other would... thing it's like all the songs are original aren't they like that seemed really cool i think so Currently on IMDb, A Star is Born has 6,000 votes and it has a 9.1. So that, that gives you a little uh, idea of how it's been received at the festivals it's played at. Um, and, like, and what's cool about it is that it's like a remake, but like no one remembers the, you know, any of the other ones. I mean, that's been, it's been 40 plus years and it seems like this movie will heavily kind of redact and alter, you know, content from the original. It's like loosely based on the Chris Christopherson and, you know, Janet Gaynor versions, etc. Right. All right, Zach, number two. Oh, number two. Uh, okay. See, I'm too hip to put A Star is Born on my list. I mean, honestly, I want to see it, but, like, I'm too cool to actually do it. So instead, I'm just going to put, like, obscure foreign movies, like my number two movie, which is uh, Shoplifters by Hirokazu Koreeda, who I mentioned on the last podcast is, one of, is maybe the best living Japanese filmmaker, one of the best living Japanese filmmakers. This is the film that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year, somewhat of a surprise winner. Um, in the synopsis on IMDb reads, a family of small-time crooks taken a child that they find on the street. And actually, that sounds a lot like a you know a creative film. I mean, his films are usually about families that are living sort of paycheck to paycheck, and um, and you know usually they're urban settings, and and they're very sort of uh, I don't know um, uh, slice of life dramas. Um, I really don't know too much about this film. Um, when when a, a film like this comes out, like by Corriada or the Dardens or, uh, you know, a director I really like, I try to actually stay away from reading too much about it, but I do know it when it can, and I love Corriada's work. He's never disappointed me. And uh, this seems like a film that will hopefully get a wide release when it comes to the United States on November 23rd. So Shoplifters, uh, my number two film, most anticipated. Yeah, that was definitely one of the ones that I looked at as well. Uh, my number two is, I've already been mentioned, it's The Other Side of the Wind by Orson Welles. It's coming out on November 2nd. 
And a lot of the stuff Zach already said. Like, the trailer looks wild, and uh, it's being released by Netflix, so we can actually uh, not have to worry about it coming to our city. It's gonna We can actually watch it however we want to watch it. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't wait to see it. I've always loved Orson Welles, all of his work. He's one of my favorite actors and directors ever. And, yeah. So The Other Side of the Wind just seems like a treat that I should never have actually been able to get. So that was my number two most anticipated. So, you know, my friend Josh and I always vowed that we wanted to write a movie about Orson Welles in the 1970s and his friendship with Peter Bogdanovich. And we wanted to base the whole movie on this photograph of them that we once found. If you, if, if listeners, stop what you're doing and do a Google search for Orson Welles, Peter Bogdanovich grocery store. And there's this great photo of them like shopping for groceries in the 1970s. And it just looks like, like they're just hanging out, like buying lettuce or something. And it's like, that has to be a movie someday. I mean, it just has to. That friendship in the 1970s and the, the, the legendary hubris and ego of Wells and this up-and-coming movie Brad Bogdanovich, I mean, that, that would be an awesome movie. So uh, hopefully this movie, you know, features some of that rapport in some degree or another. But yeah, that's just a long way of, of saying that Orson Wells is awesome. And after you stop everything you're doing and look this up, make sure you come back to the podcast and listen to the rest of it. My number two uh, for most anticipated of the rest of this year is uh, debuting December 14th on Netflix. And this is going to be an interesting film for several reasons. Um, My number two is Roma, the new movie written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron. It has debuted at some of the festivals recently and is getting absolutely rave reviews. And it's a real departure for Quaron, whose last film was Gravity, this spectacle in space. And before that, it was this really gritty sci-fi thriller, Children of Men. And before that was Harry Potter. Uh, Now you have him doing a black and white uh, movie set in Mexico in the 70s very minimalist uh just following a a family of of mexicans throughout their lives uh i'm really intrigued by this i've i've heard amazing things and what i think is going to be really interesting is this might be the biggest test of a potential netflix bias in the oscars because what i'm hearing is this this could be a good contender for some some awards at the same time it's a netflix movie so is is it Netflix, or Oscars have never nominated a Netflix film for Best Picture, and could this be the first one to do it? It might be able to. So uh, I'm not only am I looking forward to see it, but I'm looking forward to see how it's received by the awards community. So Roma is my number two. Yeah, there are a lot of Netflix movies that uh, are Oscar contenders, honestly. There's a Nicole Hoff Center movie, there's a Coen Brothers movie, and obviously Orson Welles, and this movie, like, they're gonna have like be bombarded with these Netflix movies this year, and we'll see if they actually can wrap their mind around nominating one of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Zach, number one. Uh, should I just should I just pull an audible here because I completely forgot about Roma, and wow, that movie does look awesome. It should be on my top ten list. Maybe I should just put my number one. No, I won't do it my number one, but uh, maybe I could like make mine a top six list and include Roma because you're absolutely right, Terry. It looks really cool, and I'll definitely see it when it comes out. I almost but, made a top uh, six list too, so <laughs> we'll talk about that in go. honorable mentions. <laughs> 
Um, my number one uh, most anticipated film of the year, I mean, it was always going to be my anticipated film of the year. It's like I'm legally obligated to say this film as the number one most anticipated movie of the year. That's Oscar Fahadi's new film, Everybody Knows. Um, that's the title of it. Not everybody knows about the movie, but, you know, everybody knows. Um, and the plot synopsis is, Laura, a Spanish woman living in Buenos Aires, returns to her hometown outside Madrid with her two children to attend her sister's wedding. However, the trip is upset by unexpected events that bring secrets into the open. Again, another perfect Fahadi uh, plot synopsis um, that really doesn't tell, tell you anything about the movie. Um, it, I believe he actually started working on this movie prior to The Salesman, and The Salesman kind of interrupted it. This is his second time using a more international cast. Uh, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem uh, star in it. Um, and I think he's the best living filmmaker. So, uh, yeah, it opens on, uh, let's see, uh, uh, well, I'm not seeing an American release date, but uh, at some point it will come out, and it's a uh, very strong contender to be my number one film of the year as he has two of my number one films of the year of the of this decade so everybody knows everyone every everybody knows yes not the leonard cohen song all right well uh, that would be a good movie but it has gotten really pretty bad reviews so far and i'm actually gonna challenge you that you don't have florian hinkle van donner's mark's new movie as your number one it actually was made in germany and not with johnny depp <laughs> so okay <laughs> Yes, there, there's a reason I didn't include that one because I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it. Never well, look away. I, I've heard of your uh, Fahardi movie that got bad reviews, so that happens too. Okay, uh, my number one is mid '90s, which is the Jonah Hill movie coming out on October 19th. And Jonah Hill was my favorite actor the last ten years, which we uh, established a couple of podcasts ago, and and now this is my number one most anticipated movie of the year. Uh, it looks really awesome i don't know if it actually would have been my number one until the trailer it looks like kids meets florida project meets dogtown and z boys or paranoid park um it's about a young kid who like is struggling with his home life and defends a group of skaters in la in the mid 90s uh it has the aura of a 90s movie and obviously jonah hill has learned a lot from the a-list directors that he's worked with over the last 11 years since he rose to fame and I'm going to see it as soon as possible. I think he's really talented, and I think that that is going to be expressed in his filmmaking ability and not just his acting. So, mid-90s is my number one. It comes out October 19th. I can't wait for that. Yeah, that one does definitely look intriguing, uh, having him having him come out with a, with a, a directed movie, a directorial the debut. The trailer looks awesome. I love the 4x3 uh, format. <clears throat> And Jared Carmichael in the movie. It's an interesting choice. And Lucas Hedges. All right. Well, my number one, uh, looking at, at everything coming out the rest of the year, there was really only one choice for me on what would be my number one, and that is First Man, uh, coming out uh, pretty soon, October 12th. Uh, this is the new Damien Chazelle movie starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong as it follows him through uh, the space race all the way to that moment where he walks on the moon. Uh, I am a sucker for a great space film, and uh, and this looks like it can be an amazing ride. Uh, I have loved Damien Chazelle's films up to this point. I loved Whiplash. I loved La La Land. And when I heard he was doing Neil Armstrong with Ryan Gosling, I was I was hooked from the get-go. So, uh, 
First Man it has been my most anticipated of the year for the entire year, and it will be, and it still is my most anticipated. I can't wait to see it. Hard to argue. Yeah, that was a shocker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Super shocker. That was going to be my number one. And I'm shocked it wasn't even on Zach's list at all. How dare you? Hey, if I didn't have the Florian Henkel von Donnersmark film, I think I, I should have just redone my list. Sounds like I need a little more prep work. All right. But well, hey, that's a, that's a good thing, though. That means it's a loaded year. I mean, it sounds like you know loaded. there are a lot of really good movies. Yeah. I had trouble narrowing it down to just five. I really did. Um, so, uh, so Zach, do you have any, uh, any honorable mentions you want to throw out there really quick? Well, now I do. <laughs> I never look, <laughs> never look away. Apparently the three hour, uh, epic by Florian Hinkle von Donnersmark, Roma, mid nineties, first man, um, a star is born. And then the only one that didn't get mentioned is, uh, is Widows, Steve McQueen's latest film, which looks awesome. Those are all good ones. Uh, Todd, what do you uh, got? Uh, the favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos looks completely bonkers. Uh, if Beale Street could talk and Shoplifters, which Zach mentioned, those are both definitely on my list. Uh, Stan and Ollie, which is the Laurel and Hardy biopic with Steve Coogan and John C. Riley, which I think sounds awesome. And Vox Lux by Brady Corbett. I loved his last movie, The Childhood of, of a Leader, and uh, this movie looks crazy. It looks like Black Swan or something. All right. Uh, I've got I've got a, a list of five here. Uh, first one is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the new Coen Brothers movie. Uh, it's a it's another western for the first time since uh, No Country and True Grit. Uh, Widows, which was already mentioned. Uh, Creed two. Uh, the first one was great. Michael B. Jordan, Sylvester Stallone are back, and he's fighting Ivan Drago's son. I mean, how great is that going to be? Uh, Welcome to Marwin. Uh, Robert Zemeckis movie with uh, with Steve Carell looks very interesting, and uh, the last one is one I just came across recently. It's called Love Gilda. It's a Gilda Radner documentary uh, about, and it it's kind of narrated by either uh, recordings of her talking about her life or um, famous uh, comedians reading. Uh, letters that she wrote about her life. So I'm I'm really intrigued by by that film as well. I'm really disappointed that Christopher Robin didn't make an appearance on your list, Terry. I was really banking on that. It, it already came out. The Christopher Robin <laughs> it, movie already came out. I couldn't put it. I couldn't put it on. It there. did. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> shows how memorable it was. Oh. <laughs> uh. All right, well, in our power rankings, we always have a, a contest of what we think is going to be on Adam's list, and we're going to do a two-part contest this power rankings as we have, uh, or this podcast, as we have two power rankings, basically. So we're going to do both of them and kind of combine our scores to see who's going to win this contest for this podcast. So we've all come up with our top five of what we think Adam's most anticipated are, which I found extremely difficult um, to figure out where he was going to go with this, partially because there are, like we said, so many great movies out there that are going to be coming out. So, uh, Zach, what do you have for Adam's top five? Okay, I have Adam's top five. First Man, A Star is Born, Mary Poppins Returns, White Boy Rick, and the untitled Adam McKay Dick Cheney film. It's called Vice. Vice. Yes, Vice. I knew that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Todd. 
Uh, uh, I have number five, Creed two. Number four, A Star is Born. Number three, Aquaman. Number two, Widows. And number one, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Okay. I have number five, Mid-90s. Number four, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Number three, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Number two, Venom. And number one, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. All right. Adam's list of most anticipated. His honorable mentions are The Sisters Brothers, Anna and the Apocalypse, The Old Man with the Gun, and Creed II. Ugh. All right, number five, Halloween. I took that off at the last oh, minute. Oh, I did too. Oh, we forget it. God, number Gosh, four, dude. First Man. Number three, The Girl in the Spider's Web. Number two, A Star is Born. Number one, Bohemian Rhapsody. I have two of them, right? I got I one. Have two. What two do you have? First Man, A Star is Born. Okay. I have A Star is got... Born and a gr- The Girl in the Spider's Web. And I got Girl in the Spider's Web. Dang it. As always, Adam, I am disappointed. Venom. Why is Venom starring Tom Hardy I, not on his list? I was list. deciding between Venom and Aquaman for my list. and I, <gasps> Aquaman. Okay. I can't believe you didn't have Creed 2. Creed was the number one of the year. Seriously. Seriously. Come on, man. What about uh, Mary Poppins Returns? That's, that's an Adam movie. Come on. He's going to see though? that. Is it? I think so. He's going to see it with his daughter, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. It's definitely one he'll see. But, uh, okay. I'll see it, too. So who wins? Um, we got to combine it. We have two points each. Yeah, two points okay, each right now. That's right. We'll go. We'll check we'll out tiebreakers later. Uh, okay. Adam, you better not fail me on the next one. So let's hop into power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. So, uh, our first one was looking ahead. Now we're going to be looking back. Uh, Zach, you won power rankings last time, so tell us what your ingenious category for power rankings is this week that you hate so much. Uh-oh. I hear that sarcasm. Uh... <laughs> No, I love this list. It's a great one. Um, best or Top movies under 90 minutes, and you're not allowed to say a Disney movie. No Disney or, movies or Fargo. allowed. Or Fargo, of course. No Fargo. Okay, so, uh, Todd, you start. Number five. All right, my number five is 80 minutes long. It's by uh, the director Sasha Gervasi, and it is Anvil, the story of Anvil which is uh, the story of the heavy metal band who were a commercial disaster, but they had a great influence in the industry. Uh, It has interviews with heavy metal uh, stars like Lars and Slash and the Anthrax guy who's always in the I Love the 80s stuff on VH1. Uh, Yes! These guys are awesome. Rob Reiner with two Bs and Lips are the two main characters. Uh, They probably thought that this documentary was going to bring a lot of publicity but i'm pretty sure they also know that it really didn't work uh it's a great story about the american dream that doesn't really work and i i love it it's one of the best documentaries of the last 20 years anvil the story of anvil all right number five on my list 
One of my favorite things to do when I have the time is to uh, turn it to Turner Classic Movies and just watch whatever happens to be on there at the time. And this summer I did that and I found a gem of a film noir. It is 67 minutes long. It is 1950s Armored Car Robbery, uh, directed by Richard Fleischer and starring Charles McGraw, Adele Jurgens, and William Tallman. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a group of thieves that go and uh, rob an armored car, and it goes awry, and they're on the run from the cops, and it's a, it's just a fun, uh, like I said, 67-minute movie. It goes by really quick. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a great one. I had to throw it on there because... Uh, you know, I, I never get a chance to throw on the obligatory random movie that you guys always do, so I actually had one to use, so I used it. Number five, Armored Car Robbery. Awesome. That's a great choice. Everyone's favorite. Yeah, yeah. I'm making you watch it when I beat uh, when I beat you in uh, trivia next. That's like Todd's film that that's like todd's 1943 favorite film that he liked more than casablanca what was it the road to cairo trip Seven to cairo. graves to cairo the best armored, world war ii movie armored in car robbery to cairo the armored car to cairo <laughs> perfect all right zach you're number five all right well todd was giving me crap because he thinks i'm going to pull some obscure russian movie out of my butt on this list so i decided that i'm going to make this entirely american movies because it is too easy to just pull out random foreign movies well um, that, that's going to be two two times in a row no french films on zach's list and no well, fargo yeah i don't know what i'm going to do with myself uh yeah Number five, coming in at uh, a whopping 90 minutes, is Blue Ruin uh, by Jeremy Saulnier. Really awesome uh, neo-noir film set in, like, Appalachia about a guy who, uh, basically, we don't find out too much about him un until the movie goes along, and he's, he's sort of on this revenge mission, and it's sort of a cat-and-mouse game between him and this kind of redneck family. It's uh, really tout, really suspenseful, really well shot. It's low-budget, but it doesn't look low-budget. And um, it's just a really cool movie. And Macon Blair has done a lot of cool movies since then. And uh, it's definitely worth checking out. More movies need to be 90 minutes or under, by the way. And this one is a perfect movie at 90 minutes. So, well, so, that's not under 90 minutes. Yeah, so, I was uh, going to say, I, I, I'm kind of the math teacher of the group. And 90 minutes is not under 90 minutes, dude. What? It's okay, <laughs> but it, it's... It, according to IMDb, it is exactly 90 minutes. So we're going 90 minutes or under. Oh, well, that changes I mean, everything. Change, I know, I did come across like three or four that were 90 minutes exactly, so whatever. My number four is actually under 90 minutes. It's 81 minutes, and that's South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, uh, which is one of my favorite musicals of all time, one of my favorite animated movies of all time. Uh, Stan, Kyle, Eric, and Kenny go to see the Canadian R-rated movie, Asses of Fire, and uh, they start cussing all the time after watching it, so naturally their parents declare war on Canada for uh, corrupting their children's fragile minds. Uh, it's it's an awesome movie. Uh, we watched a movie this week that was uh, about a brother huh. This one has a song called Uncle huh. from that same movie. Oh, that's true. Um, there's also a love plot between Saddam Hussein and Satan. Uh, the Baldwin brothers uh, getting torched and uh, Terrence and Philip, of course. 
in Asses of Fire. It's a genius movie. I love it. It's one of my the funniest movies of all time. I think I had it ranked number two funniest movie of all time. Uh, and wow. it's definitely under 90 minutes. South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. <laughs> well, one, one of my uh, best friends in high school's name was Phil. And so, uh, yeah, we heard our fair share of Terrence and Philip jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, awesome. the Terrence and Phil. Uh, ironically, the Terrence and Phil movie is three hours. Is it not? <laughs> Probably. Number four on my list is uh, uh, I'm I might, I it might pop up on Todd's list. We'll see because it's one of our favorites from when we were teenagers. It's one of the first ones I thought of when I thought of movies that are under ninety minutes, and that is Phone Booth. Starring Colin Farrell and directed by Joel Schumacher when he didn't ruin movies. Uh, this one comes in at 81 minutes. It is the story of um, of Colin Farrell's character named Stu Shepard who uh, takes a phone call in a phone booth, like the last phone booth in Manhattan. And basically the caller, uh, played by Kiefer Sutherland, holds him hostage and uh, on, on a phone call. And it, it's crazy... Uh, thrilling, uh, so much fun. I I love this movie, and in fact, just thinking about it makes me want to watch it again. Uh, Phone Booth is my number four. That's a great movie. It's a great movie. It is really good. That was when Colin Farrell was relevant. Absolutely. That, that was like the year he came out with like five movies too, which made him relevant. All right, number. Four on my list has one of my best actress nominees from 2006. Actually, I think she was my winner in 2006. Um, Debbie Dobrynier. Um, and the film coming in at a whopping 73 minutes is Steven Soderbergh's Bubble. Uh, an awesome movie uh, set, I believe, in West Virginia um, about uh, these people that work at a doll factory and the sort of bizarre love triangle that takes place. Todd, you were not a fan of this movie, um, and I think you have it totally wrong because it's a really great movie. And the best scene in the movie is when uh, they hire they hire Kyle's mom to replace the deceased factory worker um, as the replacement. I I like that movie. I think I gave it three and a half stars. I don't know what you talk about. Oh well, then maybe you gave me crap for naming her my best actress that year. Well, uh, we yeah, got into some. We I got definitely into some... did that. Yes, that's that's what it was then. Yes, over <laughs> Kate Winslet and Hel- Helen Mirren. And, yeah, but she's awesome in the movie, and apparently in real life she worked at a KFC. And I gave you your DVD copy of that movie. Oh, I did not know that. That's a great gift, because <laughs> it's a great movie. <laughs> well, you obviously knew it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I don't know. That was an interesting time in my life. I don't like know if I Reservoir remember Dogs, everything. the soundtrack and, and that stuff. <laughs> yeah, Was exactly. that that same birthday? No. Wow. It wasn't. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> All right, my number three is by the Duplass Brothers. It's 85 minutes long. It's called The Puffy Chair. It was their first movie. Uh, Mark Duplass is the main character, and he buys a giant lazy boy chair t- that he's going to go drive to pick up and deliver to his father on his birthday. Uh, his wife in the movie is played by his real-life wife, uh, Katie Azelton, uh, who is awesome. She's in the league with him, actually, too. Uh, it's, it like... The Duplass brothers at the time were making movies with just, like, their family and friends, and this movie was made for $15,000, and, uh, it's a little weird, it's, the tone is a little schizophrenic, but I love this movie, I think it's their second best movie behind Cyrus. The Puffy Chair, not enough people have seen it. That is true, not enough have. Definitely a milestone in I am one of those. I know. Both of you are. (laughs) Yeah, I am too. (laughs) 
All right. Well, number three on my list is from 2003. It comes in at 89 minutes, and it is the directorial debut of one Dr. Bob, Tom McCarthy. It is The Station Agent, uh, starring Peter Dinklage, Patricia Clarkson, and Bobby Cannavale. Uh, it is a story of a man who is about as introverted as you get, who, um, when his one and only friend dies, he gives him a train station out in the middle of nowhere, and he decides to go move in and live out his life in solitude, watching trains. And these two people, played by Patricia Clarkson and Bobby Cannavale, kind of just fall into his life and become uh, friends and really bring him out of his shell. It's a great movie. I love Tom McCarthy movies, and um, it's funny, this was actually like the most recent Tom McCarthy movie I saw. I saw all of his other ones first, and then went back and finally watched The Station Agent, but it's awesome. Uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, that's my number three. Yeah, I think it's actually his best movie. I don't know. Visitor's really good. I like the one with Adam Sandler, The Cobbler. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> I don't mind rewatching The Cobbler, however, it's not very good. <laughs> Is it under 90 minutes? That's the question. Uh, it doesn't matter because it's not worth being on the list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's an hour 39. Ah, it was nine minutes off. Oh. Maybe that's why it wasn't any good. Yeah. Uh, number three on my list, uh, coming in at 84 minutes, is uh, Chop Shop from 2007 by Raman Bayrani. This was on Ebert's top ten list of the decade, and I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but it is a really powerful film. And it's uh, the story of this 12-year-old kid who lives in the Bronx, and, excuse, excuse me, Queens, because he lives near Shea Stadium. And he kind of lives on the streets, and he works in this kind of automotive shop, and he's always, like, you know, um, ushering cars in and out near the stadium. And uh, he's kind of fends for himself and lives on his own, but he's really resourceful and smart. And um, it's just a really good portrait of his life. Uh, not a whole lot happens in the movie. His older sister comes and stays with him, and he actually sort of has to take care for her, take care of her. Um, and like support both of them and it just shows a kid sort of on the margins of society it's very much like a modern Italian neorealist film and Beirani's a great director everything he's ever done is, is tremendous and uh, this is a really powerful film that I recently got to rewatch, and it reminded me how good it is so definitely worth checking out um, if you haven't heard of it Chop Shop from 2007 yeah I really like that movie too I watched that back when it came out and it was I think, I, I think that's actually my favorite of his movies too yeah, the kid um, in it is amazing. Yes. Yes, he is. Uh, my number two is from 1956. It's Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. It's 85 minutes. Uh, it had a great impact on, like, modern screenwriting, particularly Tarantino and Jackie Brown, and, like, even more in particular. Uh, it's about a racetrack robbery plot with... Uh, it's got Sterling Hayden, who's one of my favorite character actors. It's... It's just an electric movie. I, I love it. It showed all the potential that Kubrick had at the younger age. And uh, it, it was one of my, like, actually my favorite movie of his until recently. But it is a great movie. And, uh, yeah, definitely uh, one of the best under 90 minute movies. All right. I have not seen that. I need to see that one. Yeah. Didn't Kubrick hate it, though? Like, didn't he disown it? Disown it? He probably did. <laughs> he was a crazy man. 
All right, well, number two on my list is one I had forgotten about until right before this podcast started, uh, right before we started recording, Todd mentioned it, and I had to put it on here. And that is the uh, 2007 film Once. I, I didn't forget about it. I just didn't realize it was under 90 minutes. It comes in at 86 minutes. Uh, it is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, this movie stars Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Urglova, who together make the uh, musical group The Swell Season. And it is, a, it is a beautiful story where they just kind of find each other and play music and kind of fall in love. It, it that's really all that happens, and you it you just fall in love with the movie more than anything else. It takes place in Dublin, uh, over just a few days. Uh, the music is mesmerizing. Um, the performances are great for these two people who really aren't actors. Uh, they made this movie on a completely minimal budget, and it just completely blew up, and everyone loved it. It, it is. Like I said, one of my all-time favorite movies. If you've never seen this movie, it is totally worth seeing at some point. Um, and in fact, as I sit here at my desk in my office, it is the movie poster that's right above my computer, um, and I place it very importantly right there because it it needs to be right there because it's so good. Once my number two. Yeah, I mean we're all fans of the film. We should rename this podcast almost sideways once. We also should have power rankings of our of our top favorite songs from once. Oh, that would be so hard. That would say a lot yeah. about our personalities. It's it, that would be a fascinating list. That would be yeah, a great list. Yeah, I could just go to my top uh my top 5 original songs of that year and that would be <laughs> my list. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's great. Okay. Zach, number two. Number two for me is uh, Wendy and Lucy from 2008, uh, coming in at 80 minutes, uh, directed by Kelly Reichert, uh, who has made several movies since. Um, this was uh, one of Michelle Williams' first big um, uh, starring roles, um, and it tells the story of uh, a young woman who is traveling uh, on her way to Alaska from Indiana, and she gets stuck in Portland. Some great Portland scenery in the movie, um, and she's with her dog, and her car breaks down, and it's just sort of a portrait of these few days in her life when she's struggling to figure out how she's going to have enough money to repair her car, and where she lives and how she's supposed to take care of her dog and you know the movie's set during the financial recession and it's very much about kind of people on the fringes marginalized kind of like chop shop in a way um but it has a universal sort of message and michelle williams is just sublime in it i mean i think it's her best performance to date and kelly reichert's an amazing director it's a film that really gets under your skin and goes to sometimes to dark places because it involves you know an animal but it doesn't use that animal for pathos necessarily um, but it's really good, really powerful, and uh, I can't imagine not being affected by it. Also, that being said, I wouldn't want it a second longer. It's a perfect movie under 90 minutes. So, uh, Wendy and Lucy, check it out if you haven't seen it. So, over the last couple podcasts, if you've learned anything about Zach, you've learned if you want him to like a movie, have realistic shots of Portland in it. That, sure. that Yeah, yeah. I'm it's looking really at funny you, funny you say Brooks. that. It's looking. It, it's really funny that you say that because that uh, that might also be the case for my number one film, but we'll see. Todd, give us your number one. Well, I must say, like when you were talking about shoplifters, I was like, this sounds like a Kelly Reichert movie or like, kind of like Chop Shop, and then you just compared those two together, and now my head's. Spinning. It all makes sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. Zach movies. Okay. Uh, my number one is was the obvious number one when I heard the category, and it's Before Sunset. Uh, it is. 
the second leg of the one of the three best movie series of all time. Uh, it's set nine years after Jesse and Celine first met in Vienna, and uh, they meet on Jesse's book tour in Paris, and it's shot entirely in real time, which makes it just really interesting, and it like heightens the brevity of like the life-altering decisions that they're going to make. It's got one of the top five best endings in the history of movies, and it will never leave my memory. It's the only answer for this pod- for this actual Power Rankings. Before Sunset is the number one. I, I can't really argue with that, but it's not my number one. <laughs> well, then you're wrong. <laughs> so, uh, my number one, for something to beat out once, it was going to take something special, and that something special comes in the form of Charlie Chaplin. So, uh, my number one is the 1936 movie Modern Times at 87 minutes. Uh, I, this is, this is my favorite Charlie Chaplin film. I haven't seen all of them yet, but I love this movie. Um, and I think it's a, it's a perfect, uh, perfect way, like gateway into Charlie Chaplin, uh, as he's a, he's a factory worker that's struggling with a lot of, uh, issues, including the great depression that's going on. So he's losing his job at times. Um, he's having nervous breakdowns. He's getting stuck in the gears of different machines. Uh, it's, it's Charlie Chaplin at one of his more goofiest, but it's also really heartfelt, um, and, uh, and really, uh, just really rings true for the time. Uh, his, uh, eventual wife, Paulette Goddard is the, uh, is the female, uh, lead in this movie. And it's also the movie that gave us uh, the song uh, Smile that uh, ended up becoming uh, bigger and bigger the further it got away from that as uh, lyrics were eventually written to it and uh, go along with it. So uh, I love Modern Times. Uh, I watch it. Uh, I actually show it to my middle schoolers uh, every year as a just kind of a, a, a gateway into silent film and Charlie Chaplin. So Modern Times is my number one. Okay, uh, my number one... Uh film under 90 minutes and again uh to reiterate i kept these films uh american films recent american films obviously modern times and once uh you're not going to top those films those are fantastic choices uh but number one for me is a film that had a strong influence on my life when i saw it as a high schooler and that is gus van sant's elephant from 2003 coming in at 81 minutes and uh, it's set at a high school um, at, on a seemingly normal day that ultimately devolves into a school shooting. Um, and it's a story told through multiple perspectives. Um, the title is sort of ambiguous. It might mean, you know, the, the Chinese maxim about the three blind men looking at the elephant. We don't really understand why it's called elephant, but uh, it has shifting timelines, overlapping chronology, um, and a cool factoid it was shot at the school at a high school that was about six or seven blocks away from the college that terry and i attended so like the first day i got there i had to go see the high school we actually terry i don't know if you remember this we had a tackle football game on the same field where there is a football game in uh uh, elephant of course i I remember that that. yeah we we had multiple games on that field (laughs) lots lots of injuries yeah um, but anyway, it really influenced me as a high schooler seeing it. I, I like the way that Van Sant played around with chronology and timelines, and uh, the ending is like eerily abrupt. Uh, you feel like it should keep going, but it doesn't, and uh, you love it all the more for it. So, uh, Elephant, a, a really jarring, uh, emotionally draining film, but uh, a, a brief one at 81 minutes. Zach, I don't know if you know this, but that school is no longer there. It's been torn down. Well, it, it had been shut down when we went to when we went to school there. Right, and, it had been yeah, abandoned, was, which yeah. I think is why he was able to use it. Yeah, that that makes sense. 
if only I had gone to school like three or four years earlier, I so would have like tried to audition for that movie. That would have been awesome. That would have been pretty cool. All right, uh, Todd, do you have any honorable mentions you want to throw out there? Yeah, I have a few. Uh, once, of course, uh, Rashomon, Three Iron, Record, uh, This Is Not a Film, Office Space, Richard Linklater's Tape, and uh, Detour, which is my number one of 1945. All right, I have a few uh, few here. Uh, tape, Office Space, they were mentioned. Pi, Darren Aronofsky's directorial debut. Uh, I could have put more Charlie Chaplin on there, but I didn't. But The Kid is uh, on my honorable mention. Elephant, Before Sunset, Fruitvale Station is on my honorable mention. And, of course, everyone's favorite uh, action film, Crank. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, but Crank 2, I think, is better. Ooh, interesting. All right, I don't Zach. know if it's under 90 minutes. I don't know either. Uh, uh, yeah, the only ones I really have are um, from the 80s mostly. Stranger Than Paradise, Jim Jarmusch is great. Uh, first film. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, which is under 90 minutes. And uh, I'm also struggling. Todd, what was that movie about the the crank caller that calls the McDonald's and tells the girl to take her clothes off, and everyone thinks that he's serious? And you didn't uh, like it, I did. That was a that that was a really good one, and I'm almost Ann positive. Dowd. Was, uh, yeah, with Ann Dowd. Um, I, I'm almost positive that was under 90 minutes. It was real compliance. It was compliance. Yes, yeah, that, that was, was it. it. <laughs> I'm guessing it was under 90 minutes. Uh, yes, it, it was. was. Uh, 90 minutes exactly. So it doesn't count. <laughs> All right, Zach, I, I gotta say, there are two or three movies that I, I am shocked are not on your list. One, Airplane. Two, Naked Gun. Um, I would have maybe 90 put, minutes, dude. I would have put maybe Naked Gun 33 in the third. Um, I think it's just but, the first uh, one that's under 90. I'm not sure. Oh, well, Naked Gun 33 in the third, I'm sure, is under 90 as well. But um, those, are, those are valid points. If, and don't call me Shirley. Yes, if if I had to uh, if I had to predict your list, both of those would have been on it, as well as Spinal Tap. But I'm glad I didn't have to. Speaking of predicting lists, it's time for part two of our game. Let's see if we can figure out Adam's list here. Todd, what do you have as his top five movies under 90 minutes? All right, I have number five, Blackfish. Number four, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Number three, Office Space. Number two, Before Sunset. And number one, Fruitvale Station. Okay, uh, for me, I have number five, Cloverfield. Number four, This is Spinal Tap. Number three, Office Space. Number two, Fruitvale Station. Number one, Before Sunset. Uh, number five, Before Sunset. Number four, Nightmare Before Christmas. Number three, Airplane. Number two, Stand By Me. Number one, Office Space. Okay. Adam, under 90 minutes. Let's see here. And the score, the score is tied 2-2 two to two between to me and... T- t- and Terry has one. And Terry has one. I have one. All right. He, uh, he tried to have different genres of films represented in his list. So his honorable mentions are Once, Blackfish, Dang Medicine it. for... <laughs> <laughs> Medicine for Melancholy, Ida, Following, The Iron Giant, Hush. I'm shocked he's seen some of these movies. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> I, I knew I nailed those two. I thought he would have them on this list. <laughs> okay. Number five, Stand By Me. 
Number four. Oh, this makes me mad. Number four, Batman Under the Red Hood. Seriously? Oh, animated Batman. Batman. Animated freaking Batman. Mm-hmm. Number three, the 1931 Frankenstein. Uh, number two, Before Sunset. Number one, Fruitvale Station. So I got two. I got two. I got two. But I had number one, Fruitvale Station. <laughs> you did. What two did... Zach, what two did you have? Uh, Stand By Me and... Before sunset. Before before sunset. So Todd had the to- correct I number think Todd one. Wins. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think Todd's that, got it. That that trumps it. Yep. Ah. Did you get any Terry? You got before sunset, right? I got I got before sunset and Fruitvale Station. I just had them swapped. Right. I had I had uh, Fruitvale Station two before sunset one. I'm calling BS on Frankenstein. You're telling me that Frankenstein <laughs> is above above some of those that's ridiculous. well he wanted to do different genres so stand by me is his oh. adventure film batman is his animation frankenstein's his horror before sunset is his romance and fruitvale station is his drama so that's that's what he went with there he he put a a subjective obligatory rule on his list like you guys always do <laughs> <laughs> okay so todd gets to pick our uh, power ranking for next time and with that, it's time to move into trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And for trivia, uh, first we have to review a few movies from before. Um, Todd gave me a movie to watch a couple podcasts ago. Uh, a couple podcasts ago. Then he wasn't here, so I didn't want to talk about it without him here, uh, since it's a personal favorite of his that he made me watch. That um, that he as he as he told me he said I never understood any of the negative reviews on it, and um, after I watched it I did. So uh, I am I'm going to talk about the 2001 film Bully, directed by Larry Clark, who uh, his. Uh, biggest film before this was Kids. Uh, It stars Brad Renfro, uh, Nick Stahl, among others, and it is the story of two best friends, played by Renfro and Stahl, uh, and their names are... Sorry, it's been a while since I've seen this, since I watched it for the last podcast, and then, yeah. Uh, Bobby and Marty. Bobby, played by Nick Stahl. Marty, played by Brad Renfro, and uh, Bobby picks on Marty, and uh, Marty doesn't like it, but he puts up with it because he's his best friend. And then uh, Marty starts dating this girl who convinces him to kill him. And because no one should have to deal with that. And it is, uh, yeah, I, I, I was joking with myself as I was watching it. It's a, it's a slapstick comedy that should be renamed How Not to Get Away with Murder. Because some of the stuff in this is absolutely ridiculous. And the the craziest part is when you get to the end and find out that it's based on a true story. Because there's no way this is how the true story went. There's no way. And and it's it's uh, poorly written. It's poorly acted. It's, uh, it's, it's just a terrible movie. And on top of it, it's a movie that has not aged well. It, it's... It's 2001 in all of its glory. Um, 
one of, one of the things that I, I found really interesting as they're trying to as they're trying to convince people that because uh, they end up getting like this gang of like six or seven people to go kill this guy, including a guy who is supposed to be like a contract killer who is just an idiot. Um, they're telling him all the terrible things he does, and and it's like oh oh yeah, and he uh, he raped this one girl. Oh, but worst of all. He picks on Marty and makes him not feel very good. It's like that's the worst. You 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 went over like the most important part of this whole thing, but it uh it's it, and then after it's done it's like okay, we got to do this and we got to do this and we can't tell anybody. So what do they all do? They all go tell everyone they know that they killed somebody and uh it uh no. No, no, no. One star. That's what I'm giving it. One star. Hated it. Hated every minute Ouch, of it. One star, and I'm being well, I, generous. I knew you were gonna hate it, but that—that's a little ridiculous. I mean, you're you're criticizing it because the characters are stupid. That's the whole point. But just like Alpha Dog is the same way. Oh, like, they're—it's it's, not that it's the small char- town crime, but they're dumb because they're kids and they can't—they don't know how to get away with it. Like the, that's. I, I'm not saying the characters are stu- stupid. I'm saying. They are badly written characters and badly acted characters. They they, they are it, it it in in general it is all stupid. And come on, you didn't you no didn't like sense. the you didn't like the Michael Pitt character. He was hilarious in that movie. Like he had some great one liners. Like he was I like, said, it's a slapstick comedy posing as a teen drama. He's a top five stoner of all time. He was great in that movie. He he he's pretty great. He he's I, not bad. <laughs> I always thought it was weird, like, the eventual sentences that they all get. Like, he got a life sentence for basically just... He, he like, stabbed one guy while he was high. Like, that does not seem what would hold up. And then, like, the other guy gets, like, a death sentence, but the girlfriend doesn't. It's all really... It's all really backwards, I feel like. Like, that always stuck with me. It's, like, the... Like, the eventual sentences that they all got. Yeah, it's... It's a... I did not like this one. No. You're wrong, Terry. It's a really good movie. It's it, Larry Clark's a good filmmaker. The performances are really good. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'm not saying that the stuff about it being, you know, it aged poorly. That Okay, maybe there's some relevance there, but I remember really liking it when it came out. I like Larry Clark's stuff, though, and I know he's sort of a hit-or-miss director for some people. And Brad Renfro yeah. was a great actor. He... he obviously he tragically died i feel like that happens with like all of larry clark's actors eventually they die young but i don't know well That's and I, I i really liked kids but i i thought this was this was not in the same in the same stratosphere as that at all well, it wasn't written by harmony corine uh, that That's probably true. had something to do with it <laughs> Nick St- Nick Stahl had a great one-two punch that year, Bully, and in the bedroom he was definitely like the uh, the Henry Golding of two thousand one. Really made some good decisions with the movies he made. Yeah, and what what's with him getting brutally murdered in every movie he's in in two thousand one? That's that's a good point. Yeah, and, and in Sin City yeah. too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, uh, but he was he wasn't green in this movie though. One one of them's a masterpiece, one of them is just a piece. So uh, that's that's bully. Can we stop talking about the bad movie now and talk about the one that actually is a masterpiece? 
And that is the movie that Zach had me watch for losing last podcast. And that is um, Oscar Farhadi's A Separation. Uh, I watched that one this week. Uh, I'd seen The Salesman, and I hadn't uh, seen A Separation, which was the film that really put Farhadi on the map. Uh, it won him his first Oscar for Best Foreign Film. And it is amazing. I was completely enthralled the entire time. And it, it truly is a masterpiece as as you follow these characters around and um, talk about characters being well-written and a situation being well-crafted where you have the this married couple who's separated and you have the 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 uh, husband needs someone to look after his aging father and you have a lot of people who are very sympathetic in exactly who they are and exactly where they are in those moments and it gets to be this crazy uh, this just this crazy uh, argument of who's right and who and who should give in to what and the answer is nobody because you understand everything so well and I I just I love this movie and just love living with these characters throughout it um, when I when I was done with watching it I texted Todd and I didn't text you Zach because I thought I'd talk about it on here um, at the end, does she pick the mother or the father? What do you think? I mean, that's an impossible question to answer, right? But what I do you mean, think? That, that's... Yeah, I mean, you, you, every, everyone gets their own read on how this movie is going. And and where she is at that point. Did she pick the mother or the father? What do you think? Well, I'll answer that, but, but then I want to ask you a question about the film, too. Okay. Uh, I, I would think that she would pick the mother. That's uh, what I think, too. That's what I said, but, too. But but the question that I would ask you, Terry, is who is the most who does the most wrong in the film? Who who is the most to blame of the major characters? Because the answer to me has changed over time. Who is who is most in the wrong? Oh, that's and, so and, hard. And and for me, the answer it wasn't this way when I originally saw it. But as time has gone on, I really think it's it's the the Nader character, the 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 main uh, father character. I think he's so um, uh, arrogant and egotistical in the movie, and watching it as I have many times, I I, I empathize with him less and less. I think his actions are pretty abominable uh, throughout the film, and, and not redeemable, at least less redeemable than some of the other characters. Well, and, and he seems to to compound one mistake with with more and more. So I can see where you're at with that, but he's not the only one that does that either. I mean the 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 woman does a lot uh is i think also needs to be in that conversation too because she does she does a lot to uh a lot of wrong to make this situation happen i mean there are several things she does that if she doesn't do them this doesn't happen are you talking about razia that the yes the yes yeah yeah razia yeah. um i so i think she has to be in that conversation too yeah it, it, it's an interesting question. It, it, it's a movie that you feel like you have to talk about afterwards. You should see it in a group, and it, it's, it really yields a nice conversation about ethics and morality and social justice and inequality in the world, um, and religion, too, which is a major factor in the movie. But. Yeah. And uh, another thing I thought was kind of cool, the daughter character is actually played by Oscar Farhadi's daughter. Um, yep. And, uh, and the, uh, 
uh, Razia's husband is played by the man who ends up being the main character in The Salesman. So I, yeah. I like those, those connections there. So, Terry, who ended up taking the money? Do you know? Oh. There's a great video essay on YouTube about this if you ever want to see it. But uh, the answer is uh, the wife character, Seeming. Uh, she took the money at the beginning of the movie and gave it to the piano movers. Oh. And, it, and and if you rewatch the movie, you can see it in plain sight. Yeah. But you never think about that detail. That makes sense. Oh, he's a genius. Wow. The guy's an absolute genius. Incredible filmmaker. Oh. It, yeah. Anyway, as, as I mentioned, Terry, last time, Todd, uh, Separation is now my number one movie of all time. For the time being. Yes, <laughs> I, I guess we'll see. We'll give an over-under of six months, but... Uh, yeah, you I definitely really rotate that movie. spot. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, well, those are those are the movies to, uh, to report on, to update you all on. I think Todd ha- had a movie to watch as well, but he's saving that one for next time. Uh, just to, uh, for time purposes. So, uh, we have a trivia game to do, to take care of here. And, Zach, since you won last time, you are the host. And it is between Todd and I. So, what are we doing here? We know nothing, by the way. We know nothing. Yes, you know nothing. At, well, don't, isn't that always the case? Um, Pretty much. The trivia, the trivia game that we're playing this time, we are commemorating, as the NFL season commences... We are commemorating the five-year anniversary of the greatest team ever assembled, of course, the 2013 Seahawks. And so this trivia game will uh, look at your knowledge of um, that team. So the first question I have for you, for Terry and Todd, is I I would like you to name as many players as you can who scored a touchdown for the Seahawks during the 2013 season. You have a few moments to think about it. Again, the 2013 Seahawks, clearly the greatest team of all time. The 2018 Seahawks, not so hot. Uh, But, you know, uh, maybe maybe the return to glory is not that far away. Players in 2013 for the Seahawks that scored a touchdown during the regular season. There are a grand total of 15 of them. So let's see if you can name all of them. And we will start with Todd. Uh... Marshawn Lynch. Correct. Uh, Doug Baldwin. Correct. Russell Wilson. Correct. Golden Tate. Correct. Luke Wilson. Correct. Zach Miller. Correct. Uh, Jermaine Curse. Correct. Um... I'm going to go with Richard Sherman. Correct. Nicely done. Uh, Leon Washington. Incorrect. Really? Terry, can Didn't you name... did take two kicks back that year? <laughs> In the same uh, game at San Diego? Uh, 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 I may need to consult. Hold on. Let the judges consult for a moment here. I don't think so. Um... No, you're wrong, Todd. So, Terry, can you name one player, another player that scored a touchdown for the 2013 Seahawks? Robert Turbin. Robert Turbin is incorrect. Oh, gosh. So I think Cam had a pick six that year. 
Uh, we are looking the- for Sydney Sydney Rice, Michael oh, Bennett, gosh. Tavares Jackson, Malcolm Smith, Walter Thurman. So you end up tying that round. One point no, no, I, I get, or I, zero, zero. Or no, no, no. Don't don't I get a point because I outlasted him? No, because you no, said the same amount I did. One. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. So now we are moving on to the second round, tied. We do not have a clear winner. The second round is naming the total number of players on the 2013 Seahawks that had that recorded at least one sack. There are a total of 13 players that recorded at least one sack that year during the regular season. Can you name them and break this tie? Or else and we will start this time with Terry. Uh, Michael Bennett. Correct. Uh, Bobby Wagner. Correct. Cliff Averill. Correct. Bruce Irvin. Correct. KJ Wright. Correct. Chris Clemens. Correct. Malcolm Smith. Correct. Uh, Cam Chancellor. Incorrect. Terry, can you name one more? I'm going to go Earl Thomas. Earl Thomas is not correct. Uh, Clinton, Clinton McDonald, Tony McDaniel, Red Bryan. Red Bryan, I was going to say him too. I was going to say him too. Jordan Hill, Walter Thurman, and O'Brien Schofield. O'Brien Schofield. I completely forgot that guy existed. (laughs) So so neither of our safeties had a sack in 2013. That's That's impressive. All right. Well, I came up with one more than he did on that time, so do I get a point? Uh, Because I started. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Sure, we'll give you a point, Terry. Since right. I have outlasted him on both of these now, if I were running the game, like when we do the Oscar trivia, I would have two points right now. But, you know, whatever. Do what you're going to do. <laughs> okay. This is the tiebreaker. I want you to name how many yards Doug Baldwin had receiving in the Super Bowl. The closest person gets it. Receiving yards by Doug Baldwin in the Super Bowl. We will start with you, Todd. I'm going to say 45. What is your guess, Terry? <laughs> well, the number that I had in my head was 47, but I... Yeah, we'll do that, 47. <laughs> the correct number is 66. Ah! Terry wins. He probably should have won anyway, but, you know, we'll give it to him. Nice job, Terry. <laughs> oh, man. I don't remember him catching a ball, actually. He had a touchdown. He had, he had like, really? garbage time touchdown, I think. He, no, he had, like, the uh, last points. Yes, like, it was. It was in the fourth quarter. It was, it was the last points of the game. Yeah, score. last points of the game. Wow. So, Terry is the true champion of the 2013 Seahawks, but obviously the greatest team of all time, and one we will commemorate the five-year anniversary of. How many players are on that team are now gone? Okay, There's Todd and I were actually talking about this. Todd, go for it. Uh... There are currently six players on the roster from that team. Only three of them are active this week. Because three of them are hurt. <laughs> and one of them actually left wow. and came back. <laughs> yeah, so all that's left, well, the three that are hurt are Bobby Wagner, K.J. Wright, and Doug Baldwin. And that leaves Russell Wilson, 
um, Earl Thomas, who probably shouldn't be there anymore, and J.R. Sweezy, who left for a couple years to Tampa and then came back. Well, it looks like I'll be uh, hosting our trivia game come next podcast. We've got one last thing to do to wrap this up. Uh, and that is our quotes of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start with my quote of the day. My quote of the day comes from my number one under 90 minute movie. That's Modern Times. It's kind of a quote because they don't actually have any dialogue in it. And it is uh, Charlie Chaplin's tramp character saying to the, the female lead uh, as he's running off to the factory to try and get a job. He's saying, we'll get a home even if I have to work for it. So that that's my that's my quote for you. I just thought it was always a funny line. I had to watch that movie in business school. <laughs> that was the first time I saw it. I do really like it though. It's a great movie. It was it was my one thousandth film that I ever saw. I like like I set it aside. I'm like okay. Well, as I was getting close, I'm like this is gonna be number one thousand, and it was. And it was great. Zach quote. Um, okay, my quote comes from This is Spinal Tap, which actually is the best movie under 90 minutes ever made. And it's a line uh, that's said by David St. Hubbins. There's such a fine line between stupid and clever. And I feel like that characterizes this podcast. You, you always try to like find... Ben Stiller when you did that. You, you, you always try to find quotes that, that define this podcast and... Uh... It, it always is like a, a backhanded compliment like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what we're all about here. Todd, what's your quote? All right. Uh, mine seems more appropriate because uh, in honor of uh, the late Burt Reynolds, I chose a quote of his from Boogie Nights. Uh, mm-hmm. Jack Horner, when he's trying to find a random guy on the street to screw Roller Girl in the back of the limo on camera, he comes up with a fitting tagline, Get in and let's make film history <laughs> and uh there's my tribute to the uh, iconic actor that needs to go on the intro of the next podcast uh here. yes i i agree i agree we may need to put that in the intro <laughs> okay well for those of you who stuck around with us to the end what is wrong with your life uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we will catch you in a couple weeks on the next episode of the Almost Sideways Podcast. See you later. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.